Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Well, it's another week gone by and another week ahead in Minnesota politics. It is Mother's Day, May 8th, 2022. This is Sunday Take, and I'm your host, Boyce Olson. You know, the week kicked off with the leak of the uh, draft decision on Roe v. Wade and Roe v. Wade being overturned uh, by the Supreme Court. And as I wrote this week, it totally changes the dynamics of the 2022 election and the mood of Minnesota. And I think the mindset of most swing voters who are women, women independent voters, especially from the suburbs, have determined the winners in most close elections in Minnesota over the last few years. Now, this year is going to be different. I think Republicans have solidified a few more points advantage in greater Minnesota. If Democrats can keep the passion that they had in 2020 and 2020 and 2018 going in the urban core, then I think, you know, they can turn out more voters. But the fact remains that Roe v. Wade being overturned changes the mentality of voters. Our guest this week will talk about that and We'll talk about next weekend's Republican convention. Who are the front runners? What does the race for attorney general feel like, look like? What does the race for governor look like, feel we feel like? And then we have about two weeks left in the Minnesota legislative session. They made some progress on some smaller bills over the last 10 days. There seems to be a spirit of cooperation. But as I told a couple of people this week, If there's not going to be a deal, we won't know until the end, because I think legislative leaders and Governor Walls will act like there's going to be a deal until the final moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about Roe v. Wade with Jill Hasday, a professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. We'll talk to Attorney General candidate on the Republican side, Jim Schultz, and then we'll end the hour with Michael Broadcorp talking inside baseball, Republican politics, and their convention, the challenges, and whether or not they'll endorse somebody next week. It's Sunday. This is Sunday Take, and I'm Blois Olson on News Talk 830 WCCO. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Our first cup of coffee this morning on Sunday Take is with Professor Jill Hasday. She's the Distinguished McKnight University Professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. Thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the biggest political news of the week and the legal news of the week was the leak from the uh, Supreme Court regarding a 
potential reversal of Roe v. Wade. Just looking back briefly, as you think about the leak, what it means, um, and how the court would rule on a reversal, any thoughts on you know that what it means to the Supreme Court, the history of the Supreme Court, and then what it means to Minnesota? Okay, there's several questions there. I'll take them separately. Sounds good. So for the court to hold, as Alito's majority opinion suggests it's poised to, that there are no constitutional constraints on the ability of politicians to prohibit abortion would be a sea change in the law. That's undoing what has been the constitutional order since 1973, when Roe said states can't prohibit abortion after viability. Um, for the court to do this would be an enormous expenditure of institutional capital. It's always hard for the court when they change their mind so publicly because it undermines their claim that they're the right, you know, the one and only correct interpreters of the Constitution. How can that be if you said one thing one day yeah. and something else the other day? Also, polls suggest that a majority of Americans support legal access to abortion. So this is the court at odds with the majority of the population, which is an uncomfortable place to be. The court is sometimes called the the least dangerous branch. I don't know if that's actually true, but the theory was the court doesn't have an army. Uh, It doesn't have the power of the purse. All the court really has is that we believe in it. And if we stop believing in it, it's not very good for the court. When you say that about the sea change and expending significant capital from the court, are there other cases in history that this type of ruling would have expended similar legal capital? To me, the era that it calls to mind is the Lochner era. So in uh 1905, the court decided this case, Lochner v. New York, where they struck down a 10-hour maximum wage law applied to male bakers. And the court basically constitutionalized the idea of laissez-faire economics, said the uh, Constitution prohibits more government intervention to the market to help workers. And then even through uh, much of the Great Depression, the court stuck with that idea. This proved extraordinarily unpopular over time as more Americans came to believe that, in fact, more government intervention to the economy was necessary to try to avoid this endless boom and bust cycle. And it took a very long time for the court to drop its earlier commitments. And in fact, the court didn't change its mind until after FDR had already announced his plan to so-called pack the court, meaning add additional justices because mm-hmm. the number nine is not in the Constitution. That's just a matter of statute, how many justices are on the court. Um, Lochnerism is considered one of the worst insults in constitutional law. And it's always a deep question, what actually is Lochnerism? What was wrong with Lochner? But my view is what was wrong with Lochner is the court chose wrongly, meaning it was not on the right side of history. And then it stuck with it so long that it created an institutional crisis for the court. So one question I have is whether, does, is Roe going to create the same kind of crisis? Being so at odds with the majority of the population is actually not a very comfortable place for the court to be. So we'll see. Professor Jill Hasday is my guest here on Sunday Tech. She's a distinguished McKnight University professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. 
you bring up a very hot topic. It's been hot for a couple of years, and that is the, quote, expansion of the court or packing the court. Uh, U.S. senators this week, including Elizabeth Warren, have suggested that now is the time to do that. From a legal perspective, from a historical perspective, with the number nine not being in the Constitution, what's the process by which that would happen? Any sense amongst yourself or other legal scholars about just what that would mean for kind of the legacy of the court? So after this court packing packing crisis in the mid-1930s, I have to say that the idea of adding justice to the court was widely considered unthinkable. Yeah. What a threat to the court's institutional authority if whenever Congress didn't like a decision, they could add justices. And what's striking to me is, so I've been teaching for 24 years. When I started teaching at the end of the last millennium, I would teach it as, you know, court packing, that's just one of those things that there's a norm against it because most people took the lesson. That just shouldn't be a tool that Congress uses, even though Congress has it. And the fact that discussions of court packing have arisen again suggests widespread dissatisfaction with the court. Again, this is one of the examples of how dangerous it is for the court to stray too far from what the American people actually want. All the court has is, do we believe in it? Do we have faith in it? The Supreme Court justices have life tenure, so they can't be fired. And they have salary protection. Their salaries can't be cut. But they don't have a constitutional right to have law clerks. They don't have a constitutional right to have comfortable chairs designed exactly for their bodies or, you know, the marshals picking them up and chauffeuring them around. There's all sorts of things Congress could do if it wants. The only thing that stops it is they don't have the votes and there's a norm against it. But so I think of the reemergence of this court packing discussion as a sign that at least there's a public confidence or at least a sort of elite legal confidence in the court is, is waning. Yep. I'll also say that even if in fact the number nine remains talk of court packing can have a disciplinary function. So I've never met chief justice Roberts. I don't know him at all but I'm 100% confident he does not want to be the chief justice that presides over a court that now has 15 members. Right. I think it raised a good point. You and I are of the same generation uh, uh, and have been in our careers similarly long. And, you know, as I've followed politics and issues, whether it's, you know, Roe v. Wade or uh, labor management issues, we just seem to be in an era where history is, is, kind of coming back to potentially repeat itself in several items. So I have spoken about, well, that would never happen 15, 20 years ago, and now things are happening. Um, And so I I empathize and understand your thoughts about things you said earlier, well, this will never happen. When you talk about that, kind of finally, what do you think the, you know, best and worst or or slowest and, and quickest ways in which the either the court packing or the political influence on the court could happen? And do you believe that justices speak of these things, you know, privately to say, we have to be careful ourselves not to get out ahead or not to cause some reaction from the legislative branch? I don't know if they speak of it, but I'm 100% sure they know it. Every, the story of Lochnerism and the court packing is a canonical story that every law student is taught 
in the oral argument in Dobbs, that's the Mississippi case mm-hmm. that the leaked opinion was deciding, uh, Justice Sotomayor explicitly says, if we overrule Roe, the stench of sort of politicization of the court will be something we can't escape. And it's not like some other justice asked, can you clarify what you're talking about? Everyone knows. I mean, they just may disagree, but everyone is aware. Everyone is aware of what's at stake. Jill Hasday, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. If you want to learn more about Professor Hasday, you can go to jillhasday.com. You have a book that is a whole nother topic for a whole nother day that we will uh, rights and dating and equity. And uh, I, as I read up on you, it was fascinating. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we'll talk to a Republican candidate for Attorney General, Jim Schultz. He's in a battle for the endorsement next weekend in Rochester. He'll be the next guest on Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. We're back on Sunday Take. My next guest is Jim Schultz. He's a Republican. He's running for Attorney General. They have their party endorsing convention, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, And there's a multi-candidate race for Attorney General. Uh, Jim Schultz announced back in December. He's gotten some strong momentum. uh, And he joins me now. Jim, thanks for joining me. Blaise, great to be on with you. So, Jim, just for our listeners, you're a relatively new name to Minnesota politics. Why don't you give your background and why you decided to run for attorney general? Yes, absolutely. Um, So I grew up in central Minnesota, a tiny town called South Haven in the western part of Wright County. I I went to Annadale High School there, graduated in uh, 2004 there. I went to St. Thomas for uh, for undergrad. Actually, I spent my first two years there at the seminary there before uh, before learning that God had other plans for me. Um, then I had the opportunity to go to Harvard Law School. I went there. I, I met, uh, met my wife out there. We, um, and I, I did a lot of hard work and persuaded her to, to, move, to move back to Minnesota. And uh, we together have three little girls. They're six, three, and uh, in 11 months. Uh, we live in the West Metro. I've been in the private sector all my career, um, basically as a general business attorney, among other things, helping Minnesota businesses navigate the regulatory environment in the state here. Got into the race fundamentally because I feel like we're losing the state I grew up in. You, know, you look at the many issues the state is facing. Most significantly, I think I think crime. The um, I think it really has been two years of you know serious um, uh, serious dissent and a meaningful crime in our state that we haven't seen in a very long time. And I think there's a straight line uh, to that from the what I view as a really reckless policies emba- embraced by a lot of. Minnesota leadership, including Keith Ellison, to the uh, current levels of crime and violence that we have. Um, and so fundamentally, that's that's the central reason I'm in this race. There's other issues as well. I think there's been a meaningful erosion of our constitutional rights through COVID and otherwise. And I think um, there are just a series of issues that I, I view in the attorney general's office, um, that we've got a, an attorney general who um, who is um, fundamentally a far left activist in that office. And what I think we need to do in the office is get back to basics, have a fundamentally apolitical office, and an office that um, simply does the uh, does the people's business and doesn't get into the kind of you know far left or um, or just in you know, a broad activism that we've seen in recent years. Jim, uh, you bring up Keith Ellison, but before you can face off against Keith Ellison, you have an endorsement battle next weekend. You also have a potential for a primary. Uh, yeah. What makes you the right Republican to face off? Uh, against Keith Ellison, because I wrote earlier this week, this the attorney general's office has been coveted by Republicans for as long as I can remember. And I've been covering Minnesota politics for 30 years. So what I'm trying to kind of 
understand is what makes you different? You've been critical of some of your opponents. Uh, how do you kind of stack up against the Republican field in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, fundamentally, the, re- the reason I'm different is I'm the candidate who's not a politician. I've been, and as I mentioned, I've been in the private sector all my career. Um, I got into this race, as I mentioned, because I feel like we're losing the state I grew up in. And I like a lot of people, I think, I think, I, I think a lot of people are tired of the kind of the, the career politicians, folks who are making a, uh, who, who are, you know, using the, the attorney general's office or other races simply as a step in their career. You know, I could have stayed in the private sector, frankly, had a, um, had a lot less stress in my life and um, a lot more sleep. And I frankly probably made a little bit more money, but I felt called to get into this race because of this precarious moment in which our state, our state is in. And I think people are looking for outsiders right now. And that's, that's what I would bring. Um, you know, the other candidates in the race, you know, I, I respect everybody in the race, but you know, you've got one candidate who ran in 2018, uh, lost to Keith Ellison by hundred thousand votes, despite being up again, you know, despite the fact that Keith Ellison was credibly accused of domestic assault. I mean, I think that's a race you've got to win by a hundred thousand votes and not lose by a hundred thousand votes. And then another candidate who has been in politics since the um, early 1970s. And I just don't think that's uh, what Minnesotans are looking for right now. I think people are looking for a fresh voice, a fresh vision for what the attorney general's office can be, can be for what Minnesota government can be. And, uh, and that's, that's what I would bring. When you start to think about the office, um, of attorney general, you bring up crime, you bring up back to the basics. Uh, specifically, how do you think the role of attorney general in Minnesota changes if you're there? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there's 150 or so attorneys in that office right now. Um, you've got um, a meaningful portion of them spending their time on kind of the consumer protection side of things. And some of that's so that's really that is important. There are businesses that do um, that do commit fraud, things like that, that should be should be pursued. Um, I do think, though, we have to dramatically reallocate resources to dealing with uh, with crime, rebuilding the criminal division. As you know, Blois, there's I think there's one criminal division, one attorney left in the criminal division at this point. That's fundamentally insufficient to to support um, the work of local county attorneys that are extraordinarily strained right now, um, particularly in, in greater Minnesota, uh, but also in the metro, where uh, particularly on complex cases, murder, um, you know, significant drug crimes, um, human trafficking, and the, and the like, where the attorney general's office could be a real help to, uh, to county attorneys. You know, right now, they, they, they don't provide it um, because they're focused on other things. They're focused on things like climate change litigation. They're focused on things like um, a lot of these far left initiatives that um, that the attorney general's office has has gotten behind. You know, just we, just this week, Keith Ellison, you know, got behind this effort to um, to cancel all, all student loans. Now, um, I disagree with that as a policy and we could have and we could have disagreements on that. But I certainly don't think that the attorney general's office of Minnesota should be spending their time focused on something that uh, focus on a, you know, a fundamentally political issue like that. What we should be focused on is supporting county attorneys and dealing with the significant crime that is uh, that is out there. So we need to uh, substantially expand the criminal division. We need to also expand the charity division. We've seen significant nonprofit fraud, including the feeding our future uh, uh, scandal that we've um, that we've seen here. That we've seen that there was tens of millions of dollars pilfered from um, from taxpayers. We need to we do so we need to expand that office dramatically, increase oversight of our nonprofits, and then we also need to you know have meaningfully more litigators focused on 
uh, threats to the constitutional rights of Minnesotans um, and, um, and really defending the constitutional rights of Minnesotans every, um, every day, um, whether those threats are from the state government, from municipal governments, or from the, from the federal government. Um, and so those are the kind of key things I think we need, need to do in the office. But for me, it comes back to an office that actually does something <clears throat> about the extraordinary crime that is that is out there. That's really, I mean, this is a very tangible thing. It's not just statistics. I have my own sister, you know, had a, um, had a gunfight on her front lawn where she lives in North Minneapolis that left multiple bullet holes in her home. And I, I remember her crying, uh, calling me crying that morning. And so this is a very tangible reality, particularly for people in the Metro, but also in greater Minnesota, where, where people are being, you know, scarred, um, sometimes having lives taken and so forth by the, by this crime. And it's, it's an absolute, frankly, it's an absolute disgrace. My guest is Jim Schultz. He's a Republican. He's a newcomer to politics. He's running for the Republican endorsement next weekend in Rochester for attorney general. Uh, he's received the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers endorsement. Uh, and one of the things, Jim, that I think, you know, everyday citizens, um, Minnesotans, and certainly those of us who follow issues in politics and uh, regulations closely have noticed over the last few years is on the right and on the left, very activist attorney generals across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of key issues on that in the near term are this week's leak uh, via Politico of, you know, what is thought to be a decision on Roe v. Wade. What are your thoughts on that in, in your role if you are elected attorney general in the state of Minnesota? Yeah, yeah. Well, first thing I'll say is that I think that leak was was deeply disturbing. It's it's a, you know it's it's a threat to the independence yeah. of the court for a um, for a, a, a for somebody to leak this. It's you know I think almost certainly the motivation was to influence the outcome in the uh, in the case, and um, and that was that was uh, deeply wrong. It's troubling that the White House has not um, has not uh, called it out for the for the uh, for the wrongful act that it was. They're not calling out the um, uh, yeah. Jim, out. Jim, Jim, yeah. yeah. My listeners are going to hear that from everywhere else. I yeah. want to know what you're going to do as attorney general I know. with regard to yeah. abortion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, a few things. Um, the, uh, as, on, on this issue, as many people know, there's a state Supreme court case Gomez that um, is essentially the Roe v. Wade of Minnesota. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, there's essentially no, no change in under current law in Minnesota. I do think, you know, I, I'm, I'm very pro-life. A thousand percent pro-life have been involved in pro-life efforts, including setting up a crisis pregnancy center in Mankato. I do think the vast majority of Americans are do not support abortion um, on demand at all at all times at any point in pregnancy. Um, And I do think, you know, the vast majority of people you look at polling would be receptive to things like, you know, a 20 week abortion ban would be receptive to things like parental notification periods, things like that. And um, and what what Roe set up, what prior abortion precedent set up was essentially a framework in which um, abortion was legal on demand um, for any reason. And I think most most Americans do do oppose that. That said, at the end of the, at the end of the day, the um, at the end of the day, the Gomez decision in Minnesota would be controlling in Minnesota if Roe Ro is overturned. And so ultimately, the job of the attorney general is to uphold state law. Um, and I don't see state law changing um, in any meaningful respect post uh, uh, post uh, post this decision. The other issue that um, has come up is voting, the integrity of the voting uh, system in Minnesota, uh, and what to do about our elections. 
Do you believe the attorney general has a role in changing or advocating for changes in Minnesota law with regard to elections and in like an election integrity? Well, I, I would say a few things. I mean, one of the things that was um, that was wrong about uh, 2020 was the way in which um, Attorney General Allison and Steve Simon uh, c- collaborated to to change the change the voting laws via the use of the, the consent decree that did modify our voting procedures. I think changes to election law should go through our legislature, through the governor, through the signature by the governor. They should not be done unilaterally by Steve Simon and Keith Ellison and, and a judge. Um, so I do think I would not be an attorney general that would go along to unilateral changes to our election law like that. Um, and in fact, you know, to the extent Steve Simon were reelected, I, um, I would ensure I would I would do, do whatever it took to ensure that the laws that are on the books in the state are, in fact, um, are, in fact, upheld. I do support I've been, been vocal in supporting things like things like the vast majority of Minnesotans support like voter ID. There's no reason why we can't have voter ID up until a few weeks ago uh, or a couple months ago. And in order to go walk into a St. Paul bar, you had to have a uh, voter ID and a, um, and a VAX card. Um, so I don't know why we, we can't insist on it for, um, for votes. I, I certainly do vote. I do certainly do support legislative changes along those lines. Do you do you think Minnesota elections are clean and have integrity? Well, I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, we we know there's there's voter fraud. We know we absolutely know there's voter fraud that is that is out there. Um, and uh, and I think you know I think anybody has to has to acknowledge that. And I think frankly, you know, it's it is, and I think a lot of people are right in focus and focusing on the fact that voter fraud frankly does go unprosecuted in, in the uh, in the state. And um, and county attorneys, the attorney general's office should should partner together to ensure that when there are instances of voter fraud, that it's aggressively prosecuted and it is made clear to people that if you engage in it in the state of Minnesota, that um, you will spend. And um, spend time in prison. As we wrap up with Jim Schultz, he's a Republican running for attorney general. Jim, as you look at today's political climate and the polarization and the partisanship, uh, and it's on both sides, it's on the right, it's on the left. Is there anything that you think you can work with Democrats on or that you believe, you know, that once elected, if elected, that, you know, there's not a partisan role in the office uh, on key issues or that you'd really kind of reach across the aisle and say, let's work on this together. Well, I mean, I, I would certainly hope, uh, you know, if, you know, I, I certainly hope there's going to be a Republican governor. If there's not and, and Tim Walls is is reelected, I would certainly hope we could partner together on on efforts to to reduce crime. I mean, I think I think the governor um, is, you know, is unfortunately, you know, deeply influenced by kind of his activist base that, um, you know, has no interest in serious public safety policies, in my view. That said, I do think he he probably does recognize the um, the significant issues that are that are out there, and um, uh, at least he 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 would like to recognize them. And I would certainly hope we could partner together on serious initiatives to re- reduce crime in the state, um, legislative changes, increasing mandatory minimums, things along those lines, uh, and just you know generally devoting more resources to law enforcement to um, to help them uh, help them do their job. Um, so I would certainly hope I could partner with a um, with um, with um, the governor or Democrats on that um, on that. I um, and I am concerned um, about the, the the drift in the Democratic Party to a unique hostility to police, a unique um, hostility to measures that we don't do re- re- uh, reduce crime. But that said, I would, would certainly hope that Democrats, um, particularly in this current moment of extraordinary crime, would be receptive to partnering together on on initiatives to to reduce crime. Jim Schultz, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you, boys. When we come back, we're going to break down the Republican race for governor. Who's leading? 
does the endorsement matter? Will there be an endorsement? And the interesting little fact of will they use paper ballots or electronic balloting? I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. The final cup of coffee this Sunday is with Michael Broadcorp. He's a former deputy chair of the Republican Party. He's been a blogger. Uh, he and I have known each other close to 15 years now. We have an interesting history. I once sued him. You can go to the Google machine for that, but we've been friends, uh, almost colleagues, even though we don't officially work together. We share insights and thoughts on Minnesota politics regularly, and I'm glad he can join me for his first appearance on Sunday Take. Michael, thanks for coming on. Boyce, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on this morning. You know, you and I talk and you tweet and write a lot about internal Republican politics. And you have an interesting perspective, having been somebody who ran the party uh, in what I think uh, 2010 was probably uh, one of the most critical years. If that election goes differently, Minnesota is a different state. And there's a lot of parallels between 2010 and this year from the endorsement process, to the nomination, to the environment of the politics in the state. As you think ahead to next week's Republican convention, you know, one issue is how they count ballots. And we have contested races that always take a lot of time. What's the current kind of view of the way in which the party is going to conduct the convention and count votes next week? Uh, great question. Um, the party, uh, uh, you know, the Republican Party has existed in this state for uh, decades, decades, decades. And the vast majority of the conventions have been conducted with paper ballots. It's how they conduct the endorsement process. The last few years, uh, uh, there's been an introduction of electronic balloting into the endorsement process to use it. And, you know, there's been some technical issues with that at the party over the years. And yeah. so there is a there is a a sizable debate going on right now in the party inside the Republican party over which process paper or electronic will provide the most transparent results uh, to the delegates. And uh, there's two sides of the argument right now. Uh, There is a limited convention time this year. Uh, The convention starts next Friday at 10 AM. They have to be out of the convention hall by 6 PM. Let me rephrase it. They need to be out by midnight, but they have to end their business close to 6 p.m. next Saturday. So they have around 32 hours to conduct the business uh, at the convention at the Mayo Civic Center. That's a tight time frame uh, yeah. to endorse for all the races that they want to do and then have a platform discussion and some other things. So there is been a, there's been a push by party leadership to have the balloting be conducted via electronic balloting. And, and as Blaise, as you know, and, and, and your listeners will know, there's been a lot of discussion inside the Republican Party on matters related to election integrity and uh, questions about the 2010 election, the 2020 election. Uh, interest of full disclosure, I, I don't subscribe to that school of thought, but that's the kind of where the, the party is at right now. And so I think there's going to be a substantive debate next week in Rochester about which process the party will use, electronic versus paper. Uh, I don't have any stake in, in either side, but based on kind of the feel of the delegates, I think it's could, it could be a spirited debate and it could end up being uh, paper ballots. And when you think about the length of time for the convention and, and kind of the time constraints on the convention, uh, 
you know, we've both been to conventions. Some of them go late in the night. Some of them go really quickly and are easy. But there's a certain process to a convention that takes a lot more time than, you know, uh, it needs to. Do you think they try to expedite kind of the business of the convention and let candidates speak and let delegates vote? Or is that part of what they're going to have to deal with is the, you know, the business of the convention, resolutions, bylaws, changes, things like that? Um, Because those are the things I think that I'll just say seem to drone on forever sometimes. And when people are really there, to choose candidates on both sides, the DFL and the GOP. Yes, I think there are there's 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 people inside the party who are very passionate about the platform, very passionate about the rules, and very passionate about endorsing candidates. Conventions like to endorse, and so I think that ultimately that I, I would expect there to be a sizable debate on on the rules uh, and procedural things. But ultimately, the convention is going to want to get to the business of endorsing and hearing from the candidates. That's the marquee uh, event is the endorsement of the candidates. And so while I think this convention has the potential to have more of a feisty rules debate, I do think that will that at some point the body will want to shut that down. So the the larger agenda item of endorsing candidates is allowed to continue. Michael Broadcorp's my guest on Sunday Take. He's a former deputy chair of the Republican Party. He follows Republican politics as closely as anyone in the state. Um, okay, let's talk about candidates. Obviously, the big business next week of the convention is to endorse or not endorse a candidate for governor to face Tim Walls in the fall. You've made your thoughts known on various candidates. Where do you think the race stands right now? Who's in the lead? Who has momentum? And who's going to struggle to be relevant? You know, if I were, uh, again, no connection to any campaign in a, in a volunteer yeah. or paid capacity, just observing, I think Jensen is in a strong position. I think Kendall Qualls is in a strong position. Those are kind of one and two right now, I think. And then that leaves a number of candidates, uh, you know, Paul, uh, you know, former Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, still a state senator, is in the running. Uh, Neil Shaw. Uh, Dr. Neil Shaw, and also Mike Murphy uh, as a candidate. Also in the mix uh, is, is, is going to be there, and I think in some form will be Rich Shannon. I fundamentally believe that the endorsement will come down to Jensen Qualls and another third candidate. Uh, okay. And I don't know where the, that third candidate, you know, I think it could be Shaw or Gazelka, but I think you're going to see on that first first or second ballot, I think you're going to see uh, a Qualls or Jensen in one or two. Uh, you know, Jensen has been running a very strong campaign to win the endorsement. Qualls, interestingly enough, has been winning a lot of some of the straw ballots recently and performing very well. And so I think that uh, Jensen has a larger uh, endorsement operation. He was been in the race longer. Qualls got in somewhat late he's been showing a lot of, of momentum and energy. And so I think it's going to be a real foot race between those two. You've been critical of uh, Dr. Scott Jensen's electability in the general based on things he said, uh, positions he's taken, videos he's put out related to COVID and other issues. 
I too have said he needs to be a more disciplined candidate. When you think about the field, do you think delegates start to think about that? And or do you think delegates, uh, you know, really want the best candidate that represents their views and they're not worried about electability in November? I think that the I think that the activists, it's a great question. I think that the activists, particularly inside the party, view the view the endorsement process through their very filtered lens. And I think that they're most interested in which candidate best represents the values that they embody and the party? Who can best carry that message forward? Uh, if you look at the, the, the results, the, particularly on the Republican side, the endorsement process has not, from a statewide level, uh, has not produced candidates that get endorsed and win in, in, in November. The last endorsed candidate to win statewide was Governor Plenty in 2006. The last endorsed Republican candidate to get over 50% of the vote in a statewide election was Al Quie. The last endorsed Republican candidate uh, to get over 50% for the United States Senate was David Durenberger. Quie was in 82, yeah. and Durenberger was in 88. So you're talking a long time ago. And so I think that the for party activists, I think that electability in terms of where they fit in into the Minnesota electorate is a little off center from where most Minnesotans are. So what, what delegates perceive is an electable Republican, I don't think necessarily reflects where the Minnesota electorate is. And so that's a struggle that I think the party needs to work on uh, moving forward. Final question here on Sunday Take with Michael Broadcorp. Michael, you have the time constraints, you have multiple candidates. I don't know if it's odds or chances or how you want to frame this, but is there going to be an endorsement? And if there's not, does that mean there's likely to be a very crowded primary for Republicans? Uh, I, I always believe that conventions like to endorse. Yeah, um, I agree. So I think, I think there's going to be an endorsement, but I think because of the time constraints, and other issues related to precinct caucus data and other things, I, I think it's going to be difficult for the Republicans to come out of this convention with just with all the candidates agreeing to abide by the endorsement. That's all the way down the ticket. And so I think in the governor's race and in other races, there may be multiple candidates in the primary, and that's going to be an unusual dynamic for the party. The DFL uh, has a much higher success rate of winning statewide even when they're not, even when their endorsed candidate doesn't win the primary, and so if there's if there's a model that Republicans should be looking at for how to work their party process, they yep. should be looking across the aisle to some Democrats because they have a, a much more uh, part, much more open party process that helps to lead to a general election success. Michael Barkarp, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you, always, boys. This week is going to be intense. Last week, we had Roe versus Wade leak. This week, we have the Republican convention. We have the two weeks left in the legislative session. We have the race in the first district heating up. Follow along in our newsletters. You can sign up for Morning Take or other newsletters at fluence-newsletters.com. Follow Blois Olson or Morning Take on Twitter for the latest news. Have a great Sunday. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.